Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. There's a lot of talk in the US and other countries at the moment about banning books and book censorship. This is an absolutely ridiculous notion and this podcast and YouTube channel is 100% against the idea of book banning. It's an insane thing to do. But if your government is preventing you from accessing certain information through geo-blocking or government censorship, Surfshark VPN is here to help. With their No Borders feature, simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers and read whatever you please without any governmental interference. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and read what you please without any censorship or geo-blocking. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all my audiobooks upon completion here on YouTube for €5. Euros. It is the easiest way to support me, apart from subscribing here or listening um, directly on all the podcast platforms. We are starting The Scarlet Letter today by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Introductory warning, the first chapter of the book isn't really a chapter at all, it's an introduction, and it takes up 15% of the entirety of the book. The book is 192 pages, or at least my copy is 192 pages. The first introductory bit, before we even get to chapter one, is 30 pages. It, I believe, sets up the whole book. I've not read this before. We're going through this book at the same time. Um, it's going to be very interesting. But it's on everyone's syllabus, and the book won by popular vote. Um, I'll link to the poll somewhere. Uh, upon completion of any audiobook, you can vote in the poll, and um, voila, let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Introductory to The Scarlet Letter The Custom House It is a little remarkable though disinclined to talk over much of myself and my affairs at the fireside, and to my personal friends, an autobiographical impulse should, twice in my life, have taken possession of me in addressing the public. The first time was three or four years since, when I favoured a reader, inexcusably and for no earthly reason than either the indulgent reader or the intrusive author could imagine, with a description of my way of life in the deep quietude of an old man's. And now, because beyond my deserts I was happy enough to find a listener or two on the former occasion, I again seize the public by the button and talk of my three years' experience in a custom house. The example of the famous P.P. P. Clark of this parish was never more faithfully followed. 
The truth seems to be, however, that when he casts his leaves forth upon the wind, the author addresses not the many who will fling aside his volume or never take it up, but the few who understand him better than most of his schoolmates or lifemates. Some authors indeed do far more than this, and indulge themselves in such confidential depths of revelation as could fittingly be addressed only and exclusively to one heart and mind of perfect symmetry, as if the printed book, thrown at large on the wide world, was certain to find out the divided segments of the writer's own nature, and complete his circle of existence by bringing him into communion with it. It is scarcely decorous, however, to speak at all, even where we speak impersonably. But as thoughts are frozen, and utterance benumbed, unless the speaker stand in some true relation with his audience, it may be pardonable to imagine that a friend, a kind and apprehensive, though not the closest friend, is listening to our talk. And then, a native reserve being thawed by this genial consciousness, we may prate the circumstances that lie around us, and even of ourselves, but still keep the inmost me behind its veil. To this extent, and within these limits, an author, methinks, may be autobiographical without violating either the reader's rights or his own. It will be seen, likewise, that this custom-house sketch has a certain propriety of a kind always recognized in literature, as explaining how a large portion of the following pages came into my possession, and as offering proofs of the authenticity of the narrative therein contained. This, in fact a desire to put myself in my true position as editor, nor very little more, of the most prolix among the tales that make up my volume, this, and no other, is my true reason for assuming a personal relation with the public. In accomplishing the main purpose, it has appeared allowable, by a few extra touches, to give a faint representation of a mode of life not heretofore described, together with some of the characters that move in it, among whom the author happened to make one. In my native town of Salem, at the head of what half a century ago in the days of old King Darby was a bustling wharf, but which now is burdened with decayed wooden warehouses, and exhibits few or no symptoms of commercial life, except perhaps a bark or a brig halfway down its melancholy length, discharging hides, or near at hand a Nova Scotia schooner, pitching out her cargo of firewood. At the head, I say, of this dilapidated wharf, which the tide often overflows, and along which, at the base and in the rear of the row of buildings, the track of many languid years is seen in a border of unthrifty grass, here, would a view from its front windows adorn this not very enlivening prospect. And thence across the harbour stands a spacious edifice of brick. From the loftiest point of its roof, during precisely three and a half hours of each forenoon, floats or droops in a breeze or calm the banner of the Republic, but with thirteen stripes turned vertically instead of horizontally, and thus indicating that a civil and not military post of Uncle Sam's government is here established. Its front is ornamented with a portico of half a dozen wooden pillars, supporting a balcony, beneath which a flight of wide granite steps descends towards the street. Over the entrance hovers an enormous specimen of the American eagle, with outspread wings and a shield before our breast, and, if I recollect all right, a bunch of intermingled thunderbolts and barbed arrows in each claw. With the customary infirmary of temper that characterizes this unhappy fowl, she appears by the fierceness of her beak and eye, and the general truculency of her attitude, to threaten mischief to the inoffensive community, and especially to warn all citizens, careful of their safety against intruding on the premises which she overshadows with her wings. 
Nevertheless, vixenly as she looks, many people are seeking at this very moment to shelter themselves under the wing of the federal eagle, imagining, I presume, that her bosom has all the softness and snugness of an eater-down pillow. But she has no great tenderness even in her best of moods, and, sooner or later, oftener sooner than late, is apt to fling off her nestlings with a scratch of her claw, and dab her beak, or a rankling wound, from her barbed arrows. The pavement round about the above-described edifice, which we may as well name at once as the custom house of the port, has grass growing in its chinks to show that it has not, of late days, been worn by any multitudinous resort of business. In some months of the year, however, there are often chances of forenoon, when affairs move onward with a livelier tread. Such occasions might remind the elderly citizen of that period, before the last war with England, when Salem was a port by itself, not scorned as she is now by her own merchants and ship owners who permit her wharfs to crumble to ruin while their ventures go to swell. Needlessly and imperceptibly, the mighty flood of commerce at New York or Boston. On some such morning, when three or four vessels happen to arrive at once, usually from Africa or South America, or to be on the verge of their departure thitherward, there is a sound of frequent feet passing briskly up and down the granite steps. Here, before his own wife had greeted him, you may greet the sea-flushed shipmaster, just in port, with his vessel papers under his arm and a tarnished tin box. Here, too, comes the owner, cheerful or sombre, gracious or in the sulks, accordingly, as the scheme of the now-accomplished voyage has been realized in merchandise that will readily be turned into gold, or has buried him under a bulk of incommodities, such as nobody will care to rid him of. Here, likewise, we have a smart young clerk who will get the taste of traffic as a wolf cub does of blood, and already sends adventures in his master's ship when he had better been sailing mimic boats upon a mill pond. Another figure in the scene is the outward-bound sailor, in quest of protection, or the recently arrived one, pale and feeble, seeking a passport to the hospital. Nor must we forget of the captains of the rusty little schooners that bring firewood from the British providences, a rough-looking set of toplins, without the alertness of the Yankee aspect, but contributing an item of no slight importance to our decaying trade. Cluster all these individuals together, as they sometimes were with other miscellaneous ones to diversify the group, and, for the time being, it made the custom house a stirring scene. More frequently, however, on ascending the steps, you would discern, in the entry if it were summertime, or in their appropriate rooms if wintry, or inclement weather, a row of venerable figures, sitting in old-fashioned chairs which were tipped with their hind legs back against the wall. Oftentimes, they were asleep, but occasionally might be heard talking together, in voices, between speech and a snore. And with that lack of energy that distinguishes the occupants of almshouses and all other human beings who depend for subsistence on charity, on monopolized labor, or anything else but their own independent exertion. These old gentlemen, seated like Matthew at the receipt of customs, but not very liable to be summoned thence, like him for apostolic errands, were custom house officers. Furthermore, on the left hand as you enter the front door is a certain room or office, about 15 square feet, and of a lofty height, with two of its arched windows, commanding a view of the aforesaid dilapidated wharf, and the third looking across a narrow lane and along a portion of Derby Street. All three give glimpses of the shops of grocers, blockmakers, slop sellers, and ship shandlers, around the doors of which are generally be seen, laughing and gossiping, clusters of old salts, and such other wharf rats as haunt the wapping of the seaport. The room itself is cobwebbed and dingy, with old paint, 
Its floor is strewed with grey sand, in a fashion that has elsewhere fallen into long disuse, and it is easy to conclude from the general slovenliness of the place that this is a sanctuary into which womankind, with their tools of magic, the broom and mop, has very infrequent access. In the way of furniture, there is a stove with a voluminous funnel, an old pine desk, and a three-legged stool beside it, two or three wooden-bottomed chairs, exceedingly decrepit and infirm, and, not to forget the library, on some shelves a score or two of volumes of the Acts of Congress and a bulky digest of the revenue laws. A tin pipe ascends other parts of the edifice, and here, some six months ago, pacing from corner to corner, or lounging in a long-legged stool with his elbow on the desk and his eyes wandering up and down the columns of the morning newspaper, you might have recognized, honored reader, the same individual who welcomed you into his cheery little study, where the sunshine glimmered so pleasantly through the willow branches on the eastern side of the old manse. But now, should you go thither to seek him, you would inquire in vain for the local focal surveyor. The Besma reform has swept him out of office, and a worthy successor wears his dignity and pockets his emoluments. This old town of Salem, my native place, though I have dwelt much away from it, both in boyhood and in mature years, possesses, or did possess, a hold on my affections, the force of which I have never realized during my seasons of actual residence here. Indeed, so far as its physical aspect is concerned, with its flat, unvaried surface, covered chiefly with wooden houses, few or none of which pretend architectural beauty, its irregularity, which is neither picturesque nor quaint, but only tame, its long and lazy street, lounging wearisomely through the whole extent of the peninsula, with Gallows Hill and New Guinea at one end, and a view of the Arms House at the other. Such being the features of my native town, it would be quite reasonable to form a sentimental attachment to a deranged checkerboard. And yet, though invariably happiest elsewhere, there is within me a feeling for old Salem which, in lack of a better phrase, I must be content to call affection. The sentiment is probably assignable to the deep aged roots which my family has struck into the soil. There is now nearly two centuries and a quarter since the original Briton, in the earliest immigrant of my name, made his appearance in the wild and forest-bordered settlement, which has since become a city. And here, his descendants have been born and died, and have mingled their earthly substance with the soil, until no small portion of it must necessarily be akin to the moral frame wherewith, for a little while, I walk the streets. In part, therefore, the attachment which I speak of is merely the sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. Few my countrymen can know what it is, nor as frequent transplantation is perhaps better for the stock, need they consider it desirable to know. But the sentiment has, likewise, its moral quality. The figure of that first ancestor, invested by family tradition with a dim and dusky grandeur, was present to my boyish imagination as far back as I can remember. It still haunts me, and induces a sort of home feeling with the past, which I scarcely claim in reference to the present phrase of town. I seem to have a stronger claim of residence here on account of this grave, bearded, sable-cloaked, and steeple-crowned progenitor, who came so early with his Bible and his sword, and trod the unworn street with such a stately port, and made so large a figure as a man of war and peace, a stronger claim than for myself, whose name is seldom heard, and my face hardly known. He was a soldier, a legislator, a judge. He was a ruler in the church. He had all the puritanic traits, both good and evil. He was likewise a bitter persecutor, 
as witnessed by the Quakers, who remembered him in their histories, and relate an incident of his hard severity towards a woman of their sect, which will last longer, it is so feared, than any record of his better deeds, although there were many. His son, too, inherited the persecuting spirit, and made himself so conspicuous in the martyrdom of the witches, that their blood may fairly be said to have left a stain upon him. So deep a stain indeed, that his old dry bones, in the Charaskeet burial ground, must still retain it, if they have not crumbled utterly to dust. I know not whether these ancestors of mine beheld themselves to repent, and ask pardon of heaven for their cruelties, nor whether they are now groaning under the heavy consequence of them in another state of being. At all events, I, the present writer, as their representative, hereby take shame on myself for their sakes, and pray that any curse incurred by them, as I have heard, and as the dreary, unprosperous condition of the race, for many a long year back, would argue to exist, may be now and henceforth removed. Doubtless, however, either of these stern and black-browed Puritans would have thought it quite sufficient retribution for his sins that, after so long a lapse of years, the old trunk of the family tree, with so much venerable moss upon it, should have borne, as its topmost bough, an idler like myself. No aim that I have ever cherished would they recognize as laudable. No success of mine, if my life beyond its domestic scope had ever been brightened by a success, would they deem otherwise than worthless, if not positively disgraceful. What is he? murmurs one grey old shadow on my forefathers to the other. A writer of storybooks? What kind of a business in life? What mode of glorifying God or being serviceable to mankind in his day and generation may that be? Why, the degenerate fellow might as well have been a fiddler. Such are the compliments bandied between my great-grandsires and myself across the gulf of time. And yet, let them scorn me as they will. Strong traits of their nature have intertwined themselves with mine. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Planted deep in the town's earliest infancy and childhood by these two earnest and energetic men, the race has ever since subsided here. Always, too, in respectability. Never, in so far as I have known, disgraced by a single unworthy member. But seldom, or never, on the other hand, after the first two generations, performing any memorable deed, or so much as putting forward a claim to public notice. Gradually, they have sunk almost out of sight, as old houses here and there about the streets get covered, halfway to the eaves by the accumulation of new soil. From father to son, for above a hundred years, they followed the sea. A grey-headed chipmaster in each generation, retiring from the quarter-deck to the homestead, while a boy of fourteen took the hereditary place before the mast, confronting the salt spray and the gale which had bolstered against his sire and grandsire. The boy also, in due time, passed from the forecastle to the cabin, spent a tempestuous manhood, and returned from his world-wandering, 
to grow old and die and mingle his dust with the natal earth. This long connection of a family with one spot at its place of birth and burial creates a kindred between the human being and the locality, quite independent of any charm in the scenery or moral circumstance that surrounds him. It is not love, but instinct. The new inhabitant who came himself from a foreign land, or whose father or grandfather came, has little claim to be called a Salemite. He has no conception of the oyster-like tenacity with which an old settler, over whom his third century is now creeping, clings to the spot where his successive generations have been embedded. It is no matter that the place is joyless for him, that he is weary of the old wooden houses, the mud and dust, the dead level of sight and sediment, the chill east wind, and the chillest of social atmospheres. All these, and whatever faults besides he may see or imagine, are nothing to the purpose. The spell survives, and just as powerfully as if the natal spot were an earthly paradise. So has it been in my case. It felt almost as a destiny to make Salem my home, so that the mold of features and the cast of characters which had all along been familiar here, ever as one representative the race laid down in his grave, another assuming, as it were, his sentry march along the main street, might still, in my little day, be seen and recognized in the old town. Nevertheless, this sentiment is an evidence that the connection, which has become an unhealthy one, should at least be severed. Human nature will not nourish any more than a potato if it be planted and replanted, for too long a series of generations in the same worn-out soil. My children have had other birthplaces, and, so far as their fortunes may be within my control, shall strike their roots into unaccustomed earth. Unemerging from the old manse, it was chiefly this strange, indolent, unjoyous attachment for my native town that brought me to fill a place in Uncle Sam's brick edifice, when I might have well, or better have, gone somewhere else. My doom was on me. It was not the first time, nor the second that I had gone away, as it seemed permanently, but yet returned, like a bad halfpenny, or, if Salem were for me, the inevitable centre of the universe. So, one fine morning, I ascended the flight of granite steps, with the President's commission in my pocket, and was introduced to the corp of men who were to aid me in my weighty responsibility as Chief Executive Officer at the Custom House. I doubt greatly, or rather, I do not doubt at all, whether any public functionary in the United States, either in the civil or military line, has ever had such a patriarchal body of veterans under his orders as myself. The whereabouts of the oldest inhabitant was at once settled when I looked at them. For upwards of twenty years before this epoch, the independent position of the collector had kept the Salem Customs House out of the whirlpool of political vicissitude, which makes the tenure of office generally so fragile. He stood firmly on the pedestal of his gallant services, and himself secure in the wise liberality of the successive administrations through which he had held office, he had been in the safety of his subordinates in many an hour of danger and heartquake. General Miller was radically conservative, a man over whose kindly nature habit had no slight influence, attaching himself strongly to familiar faces, and with difficulty moved to change, even when change might have brought unquestionable improvement. Thus, on taking charge of my department, I found few but aged men. They were ancient sea captains, for the most part, who, after being tossed on every sea, and standing up sturdily against life's tempestuous blast, had finally drifted into this quiet nook, 
where, with little to disturb them except periodical terrors of a presidential election, they one and all acquired a new lease of existence. Though by no means less liable than their fellow men to age and infirmity, they had evidently some talisman or other that kept death at bay. Two or three of their number, as I was assured being gouty or rheumatic, or perhaps bedridden, never dreamed of making their appearance at the custom house during a large part of the year, but, after a torpid winter, would creep out into the warm sunshine of May or June, go lazily about what they termed duty, and, at their own leisure and convenience, betake themselves to bed again. I must plead guilty to the charge of abbreviating the official breath of more than one of these venerable servants of the Republic. They were allowed, on my representation, to rest from their arduous labours, and soon afterwards, as if their sole principle of life had been zeal for their country's service, as I verily believe it was, withdrew to a better world. It is a pious consolation to me that, through my interference, a sufficient space was allowed for them for repentance of the evil and corrupt practices into which, as a matter of course, every custom house officer must be supposed to fall. Neither the front nor the back entrance of the custom house opens onto the road to paradise. The greater part of my officers were Whigs. It was well for their venerable brotherhood that the new surveyor was not a politician, and, though a faithful Democrat in principle, neither received nor held his office with any reference to political service. Had it been otherwise, had an active politician been put in this influential post to assume the easy task of making head against the Whig collector, whose infirmities withheld him from the personal administration of his office, hardly a man in the old corp would have drawn the breath of the official life within a month after the exterminating angel had come up to the custom house steps. According to the received code in such matters, it would have been nothing short of duty in a politician to bring every one of those white heads under the axe of the guillotine. It was plain enough to discern that the old fellows dreaded some such discourtesy at my hands. It pained, and at the same time amused me, to behold the terrors that attended my advent, to see Faru's cheek, weather-beaten by half a century of storm, turn ashy pale at the glance of so harmless an individual as myself, to detect, as one or another addressed me, the tremor of a voice which, in long past days, had been wont to bellow through the speaking trumpet hoarsely enough to frighten Boreas himself to silence. They knew, these excellent old persons, that, by all established rule, and, as regarded some of them, weighed their own lack of efficiency for business, they ought to have given place to younger men, more orthodox in politics, and altogether fitter than themselves to serve our common uncle. I knew it too, but could never quite find it in my heart to act upon the knowledge. Much and deservedly to my own discredit, therefore, and considerably to the detriment of my official conscience, they continued, during my incumbency, to creep about the wharves and loiter up and down the custom-house steps. They spent a good deal of time also, asleep, in their accustomed corners, with their chairs tilted back against the wall, awaking, however, once or twice in a forenoon, to bore one another with several thousands repetition of old sea stories and mouldy jokes that had grown to be passwords and countersigns among them. The discovery was soon made, I imagine, that the new surveyor had no great harm in him. So, with lightsome hearts and a happy consciousness of being usefully employed, in their own behalf at least, if not for love of our beloved country, these good old gentlemen went through the various formalities of office. So graciously, under their spectacles did they peep into the holds of vessels. Mighty was their fuss about little matters, and marvellous sometimes the obtuseness that allowed greater ones to slip between their fingers. Whenever such a mischance occurred, 
when a wagon load of valuable merchandise had been smuggled ashore, at noonday perhaps, and directly beneath their unsuspicious noses, nothing could exceed the vigilance and the alacrity with which they proceeded to lock and double lock, and secure with tape and sealing wax all the avenues of the delinquent vessel. Instead of a reprimand for their previous negligence, the case seemed rather to require a eulogium on the praiseworthy caution after the mischief had happened. A grateful recognition of the promptitude of their zeal the moment that there was no longer any remedy. Unless people are more commonly disagreeable, it is my foolish habit to contract a kindness for them. The better part of my companion's character, if it have a better part, is that which usually comes upmost in my regard and forms the type whereby I recognize the man. As most of these old custom house officers have good traits, and as my position in reference to them, being paternal and protective, was favorable to the growth of friendly sentiments, I soon grew to like them all. It was pleasant in summer forenoons, when the fervent heat that almost liquefied the rest of the human family merely communicated a genial warmth to their half-torbid systems. It was pleasant to hear them chatting in the back entry, a row of them, all tipped against the wall, as usual, while the frozen witticisms of the past generations were thawed out and came bubbling with laughter from their lips. Externally, the jolly of aged men has much in common with the mirth of children. The intellect, any more than a deep sense of humor, has little more to do with the matter. It is, with both, a gleam that plays upon the surface and imparts a sunny and cheery aspect alike to the green branch and gray molding trunk. In one case, however, it is real sunshine. In the other, it more resembles the phosphorescent glow of decaying wood. It would be said in justice, the reader must understand, to represent all my excellent old friends as in their dotage. In the first place, my coadjutors were not invariably old, though of men among them in their strength and prime, of marked ability and energy, and altogether superior to the sluggish and dependent mode of life on which their evil stars had cast them. Then, moreover, the white locks of age were sometimes found to be the thatch of an intellectual tenement in good repair. But, as respect the majority of my corp of veterans, there will be no wrong done if I characterize them generally as a set of wearisome old souls who had gathered nothing worth preservation from their varied experience of life. They seem to have flung away all the golden grain of practical wisdom which they enjoyed so many opportunities of harvesting, and most carefully have stored their memories with the husks. They spoke with far more interest and unction of their morning breakfast or yesterday's, today's or tomorrow's dinner than of the shipwreck of forty or fifty years ago and all the world's wonders which they had witnessed with their youthful eyes. The father of the custom house, the patriarch not only of this little squad of officials, but, I am bold to say, of the respectable body of tide waiters all over the United States, was a certain permanent inspector. He might truly be termed a legitimate son of the revenue system, died in the wool, or rather born in the purple, since his sire, a revolutionary colonel and formerly collector of the port, had created an office for him and appointed him to fill it, at a period in the early age which few living men can now remember. This inspector, when I first knew him, was a man of fourscore years, or thereabouts, and certainly one of the most wonderful specimens of winter green that you would be likely to discover in a lifetime search. With his florid cheek, his compact figure, smartly arrayed in a bright-buttoned blue coat, his brisk and vigorous step, and his hale and hearty aspect, altogether he seemed, not young indeed, but a kind of new contrivance of Mother Nature in the shape of man, whom age and infirmity had no business to touch. 
His voice and laugh, which perpetually re-echoed through the custom house, had nothing of the tremulous quaver and cackle of the old man's utterance. They came strutting out of his lungs like the crow of a cock or the blast of a clarion. Looking at him, merely as an animal, and there was very little else to look at, he was a most satisfactory object. From the thorough healthfulness and wholesomeness of his system, and his capacity at that extreme age to enjoy all or nearly all the delights which he had ever aimed at or contrived of, the careless security of his life in the custom house, on a regular income, and with but slight and infrequent apprehensions of removal, had no doubt contributed to make time pass lightly over him. The original and more potent causes, however, lay in the rare perfection of his animal nature and the moderate proportion of the intellect and the very trifling admixture of moral and spiritual ingredients. These latter qualities, indeed, being in barely enough measure to keep the old gentleman from walking on all fours. He possessed no power of thought, no depth of feeling, no troublesome sensibilities, nothing, in short, but a few commonplace instincts, which aided by the cheerful temper that grew inevitably out of his physical well-being, did duty very respectfully and to general acceptance in lieu of heart. He had been the husband of three wives, all long since dead, the father of nearly twenty children, most of whom at every age of childhood or maturity had likewise returned to dust. Here, one would suppose, might have been sorrow enough to imbue the sunniest disposition through and through with a sable tinge. Not so with our inspector. One brief sigh sufficed to carry off the entire burden of these dismal reminiscences. The next moment he was ready for sport as any unbreached infant, far readier than the collector's junior clerk, who, at nineteen years, was much the elder and graver man of the two. I used to watch and study this patriarchal personage with, I think, livelier curiosity than any other form of humanity there presented to my notice. He was, in truth, a rare phenomenon, so perfect in one point of view, so shallow, so delusive, so impalpable, such an absolute non-entity in every other. My conclusion was that he had no soul, no heart, no mind, nothing, as I have already said, but instincts. And yet, with all, so cunningly had the few materials of his character been put together that there was no painful perception of deficiency, but, on my part, an entire contentment with what I found in him. It might be difficult, and it was so, to conceive how he should exist hereafter, so earthly and sinuous did he seem, but surely in his existence here, admitting that it was to terminate with his last breath had not been unkindly given, with no higher moral responsibility than the beast of the field, but with larger scope of enjoyment than theirs, and with all their blessed immunity from the dreariness and duskiness of age. One point which he had vastly the advantage over his four-footed brethren was his ability to recollect the good dinners which he had made no small portion of the happiness in his life to eat. His gourmandism was a highly agreeable trait, and to hear him talk of roast meat was as appetizing as a pickle or an oyster. As he possessed no higher attribute, and neither sacrificed nor vitiated any spiritual endowment by devoting all his energies and ingenuities to subverve the delight and profit of his maw, it always pleased and satisfied me to hear him expatiate on fish, poultry, and butcher's meat, and the most eligible methods of preparing them for the table. His reminiscence of good cheer, however ancient the date of the actual banquet, seemed to bring the savour of the pig or turkey under one's very nostrils. There were flavours on his palate that had lingered there not less than sixty or seventy years, and were still apparently as fresh as that of the mutton chop 
which he had just devoured for his breakfast. I've heard him smack his lips over dinners, every guest at which, except for himself, had long been food for worms. It was marvellous to observe how the ghosts of the bygone meals were continually rising up before him, not in anger or retribution, but as if grateful for his former appreciation, and seeking to repudiate an endless series of enjoyment, at once shadowy and sensual. A tender loin of beef, a hindquarter of veal, a spare rib of pork, a particular chicken, or a remarkably praiseworthy turkey, which had perhaps adorned his board in the days of the elder Adams, would be remembered, while all the subsequent experience of our race, and all the events that brightened or darkened his individual career, had gone over him with as little permanent effect as a passing breeze. The chief tragic event of the old man's life, so far as I could judge, was his mishap with a certain goose, which lived and died some twenty or forty years ago. A goose of most promising figure, but which, at the table, proved so invertibly tough that the carving knife would make no impression on its carcass, and could only be divided with an axe and handsaw. But it is time to quit this sketch, on which, however, I should be glad to dwell at considerably more length, because of all men whom I have ever known, this individual was fittest to be a custom house officer. Most persons, owing to causes which I may not have space to hint at, suffer moral detriment from this peculiar mode of life. The old inspector was incapable of it. And, were he to continue in the office to the end of time, he would be just as good as it as he was then, and sit down to dinner with just as good an appetite. There is one likeness without which my gallery of the customs portraits would be strangely incomplete, but which my comparatively few opportunities for observation enable me to sketch only in the merest outline. It is that of the collector, our gallant old general, who, after his brilliant military service, subsequently to which he had ruled over a wild west territory, had come hither, twenty years before, to spend the decline of his varied and honourable life. The brave soldier had already numbered, nearly or quite, his threescore years and ten, and was pursuing the remainder of his earthly march burdened with infirmities, which even the martial music of his own spirit-stirring recollections could do little towards lightening. The step was palsied now that had been the foremost in the charge. It was only with the assistance of a servant, and by leaning his hand heavily on the iron balustrade, that he could slowly and painfully ascend the custom-house steps, and, with a toilsome progress across the floor, attain his customary chair beside the fireplace. He used to sit, gazing with a somewhat dim serenity of aspect at the figures that came and went, amid the rustle of papers, the administrating of oaths, the discussions of business, and the casual talk of the office, all which sounds and circumstances seemed but indistinctly to impress his senses and hardly to make their way into his inner sphere of contemplation. His countenance in this repose was mild and kindly. If his notice was sought, an expression of courtesy and interest gleamed out upon his features, proving that there was light within him, and that it was only the outward medium of the intellectual lamp that obstructed the rays in their passage. The closer you penetrated to the substance of his mind, the sounder it appeared. When no longer called upon to speak or listen, either of which operations cost him evident effort, his face would briefly subside into its former uncheerful quietude. It was not painful to behold this look, for, though dim, it had not the imbecility of decaying age. The framework of his nature, originally strong and massive, was not yet crumbled into ruin. To observe and define his character, however, under such disadvantages, was as difficult a task as it is to trace out and build up anew an imagination, 
an old fortress like Tikangaroda from a view of its grey and broken ruins. Here and there, perchance, the walls may remain almost complete, but elsewhere may only be a shapeless mound, crumbrous with its very strength and overgrown through long years of peace and neglect with grass and alien weed. Nevertheless, looking at the old warrior with affection, for slight was the communication between us, my feelings towards him, like that of all bipeds and quadrupeds who knew him, might not improperly be termed so. I could discern the main points of his portrait. It was marked with the noble and heroic qualities, which showed it not to be by a mere accident, but of good right, that he had won a distinguished name. His spirit could never, I conceive, have been characterized by an uneasy activity. It must, at any period of his life, have required impulse to set him in motion. But once stirred up, with obstacles to overcome, and an adequate object to be obtained, it was not in the man to give out or fail. The heat that had formerly pervaded his nature, and which was not yet extinct, was never the kind that flashes and flickers in a blaze, but rather a deep red glow, as of iron in a furnace. Weight, solidity, firmness, this was the expression of his repose. Even in such decay as it crept untimely over him at the period of which I speak. But I could imagine, even then, that under some excitement which should go deeply into his consciousness, roused by a trumpet peal loud enough to awaken all his energies that were not yet dead but only slumbering, he was yet capable of flinging off his infirmities like a sick man's gown, dropping the staff of age to seize up a battle sword and starting up once more a warrior. And, in so intense a moment, his demeanour would have still been calm. Such an exhibition, however, was but to be pictured in fancy, and not to be anticipated nor desired. What I saw in him, as evidently as the indestructible ramparts of old Tinkangaroga, already cited in the most appropriate smile, were the features of a stubborn and ponderous endurance, which might well have amounted to obscenity in his earlier days, of integrity that, like almost all his other endowments, lay in a somewhat heavy mass, and was just as unmalleable or unimaginable as a ton of iron ore, and of benevolence, which, fiercely as he led on the bayonets at Chippewa or Fort Erie, I take to be of quite as genuine a stamp as what actuates any or all the polemical philanthropists of the age. He had slain men with his own hand, for all I know. Certainly they had fallen like blades of grass at the sweep of the scythe before the charge which his spirit imparted its triumphant energy. But, be that as it might, there was never in his heart so much cruelty as would have brushed down off a butterfly's wing. I have not known the man to whose innate kindliness I would more confidently make an appeal. Many characteristics, and those too which contribute not the least forcibly to impart resemblance in a sketch, must have vanished, or been obscured before I met the general. All merely graceful attributes are usually the most evanescent. Nor does nature adorn human ruin with blossoms of new beauty that have their roots and proper nutrient only in the chinks and crevices decay, as she sows wallflowers over the ruined fortress of Ticonderoga. Still, even in respect of all grace and beauty, there were points well worth noting. A ray of humour, now and then, would make its way through the veil of dim obstruction and glimmer pleasantly upon our faces. The trait of naive elegance, seldom seen in the masculine character after childhood or early youth, was shown in the general's fondness for the sight and fragrance of flowers. An old soldier might be supposed to prize only the bloody laurel on his brow, but here was one who seemed to have a young girl's appreciation of the floral tribe. There, beside the fireplace, the brave old general used to sit, while a surveyor, 
though seldom, when it could be avoided, taking upon himself the difficult task of engaging him in conversation, was fond of standing at a distance and watching his quiet and almost slumberous countenance. He seemed away from us, although we saw him but a few yards off, remote, though we passed close beside his chair, unattainable, though we might have stretched forth our hands and touched his own. It might be that he lived a more real life within his thoughts than amid the inappropriate environment of the collector's office. The evolution of the parade, the tumult of the battle, the nourish of old heroic music heard thirty years before. Such scenes and sounds perhaps were alive before his intellectual senses. Meanwhile, the merchants and shipmasters, the spruce clerks and uncouth sailors entered and departed. The bustle of this commercial and custom-house life kept up its little murmur round about him. And neither with the men nor their affairs did the general appear to sustain the most distant relation. He was as much out of place as an old sword, now rusty, but which had flashed once in the battlefront and showed still a bright gleam along its blade, would have been among the inkstands, paper folds, and mahogany rulers on the deputy collector's desk. There was one thing that much aided me in the renewing and recreating of the stalwart soldier in the Niagara frontier, the man of true and simple energy. It was the recollection of those memorable words of his, I'll try, sir, spoken on the very verge of a desperate and heroic enterprise, and breathing the soil and spirit of New England hardlihood, comprehending all perils and encountering all. If in our country valor were rewarded by heraldic honor, this phrase, which it seems so easy to speak, but which only he, with such a task of danger and glory before him, has ever spoke, would be the best and fittest of all mottoes for the general's shield of arms. It contributes greatly towards the man's moral and intellectual health to be brought into the habits of companionship with individuals unlike himself, who care little for his pursuits, and whose fears and abilities he must go out of himself to appreciate. The accents of my life have often afforded me this advantage, but never with more fullness and variety than during my continuance in office. There was one man, especially, the observation of whose character gave me a new idea of talent. His gifts were emphatically those of a man of business, prompt, acute, clear-minded, with an eye that saw through all perplexities and a faculty of arrangements that made them vanish as by the waving of the enchanter's wand. Bred up from boyhood in the custom house, it was his proper field of activity. And the many intricacies of business, so harassing to the interloper, presented themselves before him with the regularity of a perfectly comprehended system. In my contemplation, he stood as the ideal of his class. He was, indeed, the custom house in himself, or, at all events, the main spring that had kept its variously revolving wheels in motion. For, in an institution like this, where its officers are appointed to subserve their own profit and convenience, and seldom with a leading reference to their fitness for the duty to be performed, they must perforce seek elsewhere the dexterity which is not in them. Thus, by an inevitable necessity, as a magnet attracts steel filings, so did our man of business draw himself to the difficulties which everybody met with. With an ease of condensation and a forbearance towards our stupidity, which to his order of mind must have seemed a little short of crime, would he forthwith, by the merest touch of his finger, make the incomprehensible as clear as daylight. The merchants valued him not less than we, his esoteric friends. His integrity was perfect. It was a law of nature with him rather than a choice or principle, 
Nor can it be otherwise that the main condition of an intellect so remarkably clear and accurate as his to be honest and regular in the administration of affairs. The stain on his consciousness as to anything that came within the range of his vocation would trouble such a man very much in the same way, though to a far greater degree than an error in the balance of an account or an inkblot on the fair page of a book of record. Here, in a word, and it is a rare instance in my life, I had met with a person thoroughly adapted to the situation which he held. Such were some of the people with whom I now found myself connected, I took it in good part at the hands of Providence, that I was thrown into a position so little akin to my past habits, and set myself seriously to gather from it whatever profit was to be had. After my fellowship of toil and impracticable schemes with the dreamy brethren of Brook Farm, after living for three years within the subtle influence of an intellect like Emerson's, after those wild, free days on the Asabeth, indulging in fantastic speculations beside our fire of fallen boughs with Ellery Channing, after talking with Thoreau about pine trees and Indian relics at his hermitage at Walden, after growing fastidious by sympathy with the classic refinement of Hillard's culture, after becoming imbued with the poetic sentiment of Longfellow's hearthstone. It was time, at length, that I should exercise other faculties of my nature and nourish myself with food, which I had hitherto had little appetite. Even the old inspector was desirable as a change of diet to a man who had known Alcott. I looked upon it as an evidence, in some measure, of a system naturally well-balanced and lacking no essential part of a thorough organization. And lacking no essential part of a thorough organization that, with such associates to remember, I could mingle at once with men of altogether different qualities and never murmur at the change. Literature and its exertions and objects were now of little moment in my regard. I cared not at this period for books. They were apart from me. Nature, except it were human nature, the nature that is developed in earth and sky, was, in one sense, hidden from me. And all the imaginative delight wherewith it had been spiritualized passed away out of my mind. A gift, a faculty, if it had not departed, was suspended and inanimate with me. There would have been something sad and utterly dreary in all this, had I not been conscious that it lay at my own option to recall whatever was valuable in the past. It might be true, indeed, that this was a life which could not, with impunity, be lived too long, else it might make me permanently other than I had been, without transforming me into any shape which would be worth my while to take. But I never considered it as other than a transitory life. There was always a prophetic instinct, a low whisper in my ear, that within no long period, and whenever a new change of custom should be essential to my good, change would come. Meanwhile, there I was, a surveyor of the revenue, and, so far as I've been able to understand, as good a surveyor as need be. A man of thought, fancy, and sensibility, he had ten times the surveyor's proportion of those qualities, may, at any time, be a man of affairs if he'll only choose to give himself the trouble. My fellow officers, and merchants and sea captains with whom my official duties brought me into any manner of connection, viewed me in no other light, and probably knew me in no other character. None of them, I presume, had ever read a page of my indicting. None of them, I presume, had ever read a page of my indicting, or would have cared a fig the more for me if they had read them all. Nor would it have mended the matter in the least, had those same unprofitable pages been written with a pen like of Burns or of Chaucer, each of whom was a custom house officer in his day, as well as I. It is a good lesson, though it may often be a hard one, 
for a man who has dreamed of literary fame and of making for himself a rank among the world's dignitaries by such a means to step aside out of the narrow circle in which his claims are recognized and to find how utterly devoid of significance beyond that circle is, is all he achieves and all he aims at. I know not that I especially needed the lesson either in the ways of warning or rebuke, but at any rate, I learned it thoroughly. Nor it gives me pleasure to reflect that the truth, as it came home to my perception, ever cost me a pang, or required to be thrown off in a sigh. In the way of literary talk, it is true, the naval officer, an excellent fellow who came into office with me and went out only a little later, would often engage me in a discussion about one or the other of his favorite topics, Napoleon or Shakespeare. The collector's junior clerk, too, a young gentleman who, it was whispered, occasionally covered a sheet of Uncle Sam's letter paper with what, at the distance of a few yards, looked very much like poetry, used now and then to speak to me of books as matters with which I might possibly be conversant. This was all of my lettered intercourse, and it was quite sufficient for my necessities. No longer seeking or caring that my name should be blacksoned abroad on title pages, I smiled to think that it had now another kind of vogue. The custom house marker imprinted it, with stencil and black paint on pepper bags and baskets of anato and cigar boxes and bales of all kinds of dutable merchandise in testimony that these commodities had paid the impost and gone regularly through my office. Born on such a queer vehicle of fame, a knowledge of my existence, so far as name conveys it, was carried where it had never been before and, I hope, will never go again. But the past was not dead. Once in a great while, the thoughts that had seemed so vital and so active, yet had been put to rest so quietly, revived again. One of the most remarkable occasions, when the habit of bygone days awoke in me, was that which brings it within the law of literary propriety to offer the public the sketch which I am now writing. In the second story of the Custom House, there is a large room, in which the brick-worked and naked rafters have been covered with panelling and plaster. The edifice, originally projected on a scale adapted to the old commercial enterprise of the port, and with an idea of subsequent prosperity destined never to be realized, contains far more space than its occupants know what to do with. This airy hall, therefore, over the collector's apartments, remains unfinished to this day, and, in spite of the aged cobwebs that festoon its dusky beams, appears still to await the labor of the carpenter and mason. At one end of the room, in a recess, were a number of large barrels, piled one upon another, containing bundles of official documents. Large qualities of similar rubbish lay lumbering the floor. It was sorrowful to think how many days and weeks and months and years of toil had been wasted on these musty papers, which were now only an encumbrance on earth, and were hidden away in this forgotten corner, never more to be glanced at by human eyes. But then, what reams of other manuscripts, filled not with the dullness of official formalities, but with the thought of inventive brains and the rich effusion of deep hearts, had gone equally to oblivion, and that, moreover, without serving a purpose in their day, as these heaped up piles of paper had, and, saddest of all, without purchasing for their writers the comfortable livelihood which the clerks of the custom house had gained by these worthless scratchings of the pen. Yet not altogether worthless, perhaps as material of local history. Here, no doubt, statistics of the former commerce of Salem might be discovered, and memorials of princely merchants, old King Darby, old Billy Gray, old Simon Forrester, and many another magnet in his day, whose powdered head, however, was scarcely in the tomb before his mountain pile of wealth began to dwindle. 
the founders of the greater part of the families which now compose the aristocracy of Salem, might here be traced from the petty and obscure beginnings of their traffic, at periods generally much posterior to the revolution, upwards to what their children look upon as long-established rank. Prior to the revolution, there's a dearth of records, the earlier documents and archives of the Custom House having, probably, been carried off to Halifax, when all the king's officials accompanied the British army in its flight from Boston. It has often been a matter of regret with me, for, going back perhaps to the days of the old prospectorate, those papers must have contained many references to forgotten or remembered men, and to antique customs which would have affected me with the same pleasure as when I used to pick up Indian arrowheads in the field near the old manse. But one idle rainy day, it was my fortune to make a discovery of some little interest, poking and burrowing into the heaped-up rubbish in the corner, unfolding one another document, and reading up the names of vessels that had long ago founded at sea or rotted at the wharves, and those of merchants never heard of now on, change nor very readily decipherable on their mossy tombstones, glancing at such matters with the saddened, weary, half-reluctant interest which we bestow on a corpse of dead activity, and exerting my fancy, sluggish, with little use, to raise up from these dry bones an image of the old town's brighter aspect, when India was a new region, and only Salem knew the way thither. I chanced to lay my hands on a small package, carefully done up in a piece of ancient yellow parchment. This envelope had the air of an official record of some period long past, when clerks engrossed their stiff and formal geography on more substantial materials than at present. There was something about it that quickened instinctive curiosity and made me undo the faded red tape that tied up the package with the sense that a treasure would here be brought to light. Unbending the rigid folds of the parchment cover, I found it to be a commission under the hand and seal of Governor Shirley in favor of one Jordan Pugh, a surveyor of His Majesty's customs for the Port of Salem in the provenance of Massachusetts Bay. I remember to have read probably in Felt's Annals, a notice of the decease of Mr. Surveyor Pugh about fourscore years ago, and likewise, in a newspaper of recent times, an account of the digging up of his remains in the little graveyard of St. Peter's Church during the renewal of that edifice. Nothing, if I rightly call to mind, was left of my respected predecessor save an imperfect skeleton, and some fragments of apparel, and a wig of majestic frizzle, which, unlike the head it had once adorned, was in very satisfactory preservation. But on examining the papers which the parchment commission served to envelop, I found more traces of Mr. Pugh's mental part, and the internal operations of the head than the frizzled wig had contained of the venerable skull itself. They were documents, in short, not official, but of a private nature, or at least written in his private capacity, and, apparently, with his own hand. I could account for their being included in the heap of customs house lumber only by the fact that Mr. Pugh's death had happened suddenly, and that these papers, which he had probably kept in his official desk, had never come to the knowledge of his heirs, or were supposed to relate to the business of the revenue. On the transfer of the archive to Halifax, this package, proving to be of no public concern, was left behind, and had remained, ever since, unopened. The Ancient Surveyor being little molested, I suppose, at that early day with business pertaining to his office, seems to have devoted some of his many leisurely hours to researches as a local antiquarian and other inquisitions of a similar nature. These supplied material for petty activity to a mind that would otherwise have been eaten up with rust. 
A portion of his facts, by the by, did me good service in the preparation of the article entitled Main Street, included in the present volume. The remainder may perhaps be applied in purposes equally valuable hereafter, or not impossibly may be worked up so far as they go into a regular history of Salem, should my veneration of the natal soil ever impel me to so pious a task. Meanwhile, they should be at the command of any gentleman, inclined and competent, to take the unprofitable labor off my hands. Meanwhile, they shall be at the command of any gentleman, inclined and competent, to take the unprofitable labor off my hands. As a final disposition, I contemplate disposing them with the Essex Historical Society. But the object that most drew my attention in the mysterious package was a certain affair of fine red cloth, much worn and faded. There were traces about it of gold embroidery, which, however, was greatly frayed and defaced, so that none or very little of the glitter was left. It had been wrought, as was very easy to perceive, with wonderful skill of needlework, and the stitch, I am assured by ladies conversant with such mysteries, gives evidence of a now-forgotten art, not to be recovered even by the process of picking out the threads. This rag of scarlet cloth, for time and wear, and a sacrilegious moth had reduced it to little other than a rag, on careful examination, assumed the shape of a letter. It was the capital A. By an accurate measurement, each limb proved to be precisely three inches and a quarter in length. It had been intended, there could be no doubt, as an ornamental article of dress. But how it was worn, or what rank, honor, and dignity, in by past times was signified by it, was a riddle which, so evanescent are the fashions of the world in these particulars, I saw little hope in solving. And yet, it strangely interested me. My eyes fastened themselves on the old scarlet letter, and would not be turned aside. Certainly, there was some deep meaning in it, most worthy of my interpretation, and which, as it were, streamed forth from the majestic symbol, subtly communicating itself to my sensibilities, but evading the analysis of my mind. While thus perplexed, and cogitating among other hypotheses whether the letter might not have been one of those decorations which the white men used to contrive in order to take the eyes of the Indians, I happened to place it on my breast. It seemed to me, the reader may smile, but must not doubt my words, it seemed to me then that I had experienced a sensation not altogether physical, yet almost so, as of burning heat, and as if the letter were not of red cloth, but red-hot iron. I shuddered, and involuntarily let it fall upon the floor. In the absorbing contemplation of the scarlet letter, I had hitherto neglected to examine a small roll of dingy paper, around which it had been twisted. This I now open, and had the satisfaction to find, recorded by the old surveyor's pen, a reasonably complete examination of the whole affair. There were many foolscap sheets, containing many particulars respecting the life and conversation of one Hester Prynne, who appeared to have been a rather noteworthy personage in the view of our ancestors. She had flourished during this period between the early days of Massachusetts and the close of the 17th century. Aged persons, alive in the time of Mr. Surveyor Pugh, and from whose oral testimony he had made up in his narrative, remembered her, in their youth, as a very old, but not decrepit woman, of a stately and solemn aspect. It had been her habit, from an almost immemorial date, to go about the country as a kind of voluntary nurse, and, doing whatever miscellaneous good she might, taking upon herself, likewise, to give advice in all matters, especially those of the heart, by which means, as a person of such propensities inevitably must, she gained from many people the reverence due to an angel. But, I should imagine, was looked upon others as an intruder and a nuisance. Prying further into the manuscript, I found record of other doings and sufferings of this singular woman, 
for most of which the reader is referred to the story entitled The Scarlet Letter. And it should be carefully borne in the mind that the main facts of the story are authorized and authenticated by the document of Mr. Surveyor Pugh. The original papers, together with the Scarlet Letter itself, a most curious relic, are still in my possession, and shall freely be exhibited to whomever, induced by the great interest of the narrative, may desire a sight of them. I must not be understood as affirming that, in the dressing up of the tale and imagining the motives and modes of passion that influence the characters who figure in it, I have invariably confined myself within the limits of old surveyor's half a dozen sheets of fool's cap. On the contrary, I have allowed myself as to such points, nearly or altogether, as much license if the facts had been entirely of my own invention. What I contended for is the authenticity of the outline. This incident recalled my mind, in some degree, to its old track. There seemed to be here the groundwork of a tale. It impressed me as if the ancient surveyor, in his garb of a hundred years gone by, and wearing his immortal wig, which was buried with him, but did not perish in the grave, had met me in the deserted chamber of the custom house. In his port was the dignity of one who had borne his majesty's commission, and who was, therefore, illuminated by rays of splendor that shone so dazzlingly about the throne. How unlike, alas, the hangdog look of a republican official, who, as a servant of the people, feels himself less than the least and below the lowest of his masters. With his own ghostly hand, the obscurely seen but majestic figure had imparted to me the scarlet symbol and the little roll of explanatory manuscript. With his own ghostly voice, he had exhorted me on the sacred consideration of my filial duty and reverence towards him, who might reasonably regard himself as my official ancestor, to bring his mouldy and moth-eaten lucubrations before the public. Do this said the ghost of Mr. Surveyor Pugh, emphatically nodding the head that looked so imposing within his memorial wig. Do this, and the profit shall be all your own. You will shortly need it, for it is not in your days, as it was in mine, when a man's office was a life lease, and oftentimes an heirloom. But I charge you, in this matter of old Mistress Prynne, to give your predecessor's memory the credit, which will be rightfully due. And I said to the ghost of Mr. Surveyor Pugh, I will. On Hester Prynne's story, therefore, I bestowed much thought. It was the subject of my meditations for many an hour, while pacing to and fro across my room, or traversing with a hundredfold repetition the long extent from the front door of the custom house to the side entrance and back. Great were the weariness and annoyance of the old inspector and the weighers and gorgers, whose slumbers were disturbed by the unmerciful lengthened tramp of my passing and returning footsteps. Remembering their old former habits, they used to say that the surveyor was walking the quarter deck. They probably fancied that my sole object, and indeed the sole object for which a sane man could ever put himself into a voluntary motion, was to get the appetite for dinner. And, to say the truth, an appetite, sharpened by the east wind that generally blew along the passage, was the only valuable result of so much indefatigable exercise. So little adapted is the atmosphere of a custom house to the delicate harvest of a fancy and sensibility, that had I remained there through ten presidencies yet to come, I doubt whether the tale of the Scarlet Letter would ever have been brought before the public eye. My imagination was a tarnished mirror. It would not reflect, or only with the miserable dimness, the figures with which I did my best to people it. The characters of the narrative would not be warmed and rendered malleable by any heat that could kindle at my intellectual forge. They would take neither the glow of passion nor the tenderness of sentiment, but retained all the rigidity of dead corpses, and stared me in the face with a fixed and ghastly grin of contemptuous defiance. What have you to do with us? 
the expression seemed to say. The little power that you might have once possessed over this tribe of unrealities is gone. You have bartered it for the pittance of public gold. Go then and earn your wages. In short, the almost torpid creatures of my own fancy twitted me with imbecility, and not without fair occasion. It was not merely during the three and a half hours which Uncle Sam claimed as his share of my daily life that this wretched numbness held possession of me. It went with me on my seashore walks and rambles into the country whenever, which was seldom and reluctantly, I bestirred myself to seek that invigorating charm of nature which used to give me such freshness and activity of thought, the moment that I stepped across the threshold of the old manse. The same torpor as regarded the capacity for intellectual effort accompanied me home and weighed on me in the chamber which I most absurdly termed my study. Nor did it quit me when, late at night, I sat in the deserted parlour, lighted only by the glimmering coal fire and the moon, striving to picture forth imaginary scenes, which, the next day, might flow out onto the brightening page in many hued descriptions. If the imaginative faculty refused to act at such an hour, it might well be deemed a hopeless case. Moonlight, in a familiar room, falling so white upon the carpet, and showing its figure so distinctly, making every object minutely visible, yet so unlike morning or noontide visibility, is a medium most suitable for a romance writer to get acquainted with his elusive guests. There is the little domestic scenery of the well-known apartment, the chairs, with each its separate individuality, the centre table, sustaining a work basket, a volume or two, and an extinguished lamp, the sofa, the bookcase, the picture on the wall. All these details, so completely seen, are so spiritualised by the unusual light that they seem to lose their actual substance and become things of intellect. Nothing is too small or too trifling to undergo this change and acquire dignity thereby. A child's shoe, the doll, seated in her little wicker carriage, the hobby horse, whatever, in a word, has been used or played with during the day, is now invested with a quality of strangeness and remoteness, though still almost as vividly present as by daylight. Thus, therefore, the floor of our familiar room has become a neutral territory, somewhere between the real world and fairyland, where the actual and the imaginary may meet, and each imbue itself with the nature of the other. Ghosts might enter here without affrighting us. It would be too much in keeping with the scene to excite surprise were we to look about us and discover a form, beloved but gone hence, now sitting quietly in a streak of this strange moonshine, with an aspect that would make us soon doubt whether it had returned from afar or had never once stirred from our fireside. The somewhat dim coal fire has an essential influence in producing the effect which I would describe. It throws its unobtrusive tinge throughout the room with a faint ruddiness upon the walls and ceiling and reflected gleam from the polish of the furniture. This warmer light mingles itself with the cold spirituality of the moonbeams and communicates, as it were, a heart and sensibilities of human tenderness to the forms which fancy summons up. It converts them from snow images into men and women. Glancing into the looking-glass we behold, deep within its haunted verge, the smouldering glow of the half-extinguished anthracite, the white moonbeams on the floor, and a repetition of all the gleam and shadow of the picture, with one removed further from the actual and nearer to the imaginative. Then, at such an hour, and with this scene before him, if a man, sitting all alone, cannot dream such things and make them look like truth, he need never try to write romances. But for myself, during the whole of my custom-house experience, 
moonlight and sunshine, and the glow of the firelight, were just alike in my regard, and neither of them was of one whit more avail than the twinkle of a tallow candle. An entire class's susceptibilities, and a gift connected with them, of no greater richness or value, but the best I had, was gone from me. It is my belief, however, that had I attempted a different order of composition, my faculties would not have been found so pointless and inefficacious. I might, for instance, have contented myself with writing out the narratives of a veteran shipmaster, one of the inspectors whom I should be most ungrateful not to mention, since scarcely a day passes that he did not stir me to laughter and admiration by his marvellous gifts as a storyteller. Could I have preserved the picturesque force of his style? The humorous colouring which nature taught him how to throw over his descriptions, the result, I honestly believe, would have been something new in literature. Or I might readily have found a more serious task. It was a folly with the materiality of his daily life pressing so intrusively upon me to attempt to fling myself back into another age or to insist on creating the semblance of a world out of airy matter. When, at every moment, the impalpable beauty of my soap bubble was broken by the rude contact of some actual circumstance. The wiser effort would have been to diffuse thought and imagination through the opaque substance of today, and thus to make a bright transparency, to spiritualize the burden that began to weigh so heavily, to seek resolutely the true and indestructible value that lay hidden in the petty and wearisome incidents and ordinary characters with which I was now conversant. The fault was mine. The page of life that was spread out before me seemed dull and commonplace only because I had not fathomed its deeper import. A better book than I shall ever write was there, leaf after leaf, presenting itself to me, just as it was written out by the reality of the flitting hour and vanishing as fast as written, only because my brain wanted the insight and my hand the cunning to transcribe it. At some future day, it may be, I shall remember a few scattered fragments and broken paragraphs and write them down and find the letters turn to gold upon the page. These perceptions have come too late. At the instant, I was only conscious that what would have been a pleasure once was now a hopeless toil. There was no occasion to make much moan about this state of affairs. I'd ceased to be a writer of tolerably poor tales and essays, and I'd become a tolerably good surveyor of the customs. That was all. But nevertheless, it is anything but agreeable to be haunted by a suspicion that one's intellect is dwindling away or exhaling, without your consciousness, like ether out of a vial, so that, at every glance, you find a small and less volatile residuum. At the fact, there could be no doubt, and, examining myself and others, I was led to conclusions in reference to the effect of public office on the character, not very favourable to the mode of life in question. In other forms, perhaps, I may hereafter develop these effects. Suffice it to say here, that a customs officer of long continuance can hardly be a very praiseworthy or respectable personage. For many reasons. One of them, the tenure by which he holds his situation. And another, the very nature of his business, which, though I trust an honest one, is of such a sort that he does not share in the united effort of mankind. An effect which I believe to be observable, more or less, in every individual who has occupied the position, is that while he leans on the mighty arm of the Republic, his own proper strength departs from him. He loses, in an extent proportioned to the weakness or force of his original nature, the capability of self-support. If he possesses an unusual share of native energy, or the enervating magic of the place do not operate too long upon him, his forfeited powers may be redeemable. The ejected officer, fortunate in the unkindly shove that sends him forth betimes to struggle amid a struggling world, may return to himself 
and become all that he has ever been. But this seldom happens. He usually keeps his ground just long enough for his own ruin, and is then thrust out with sinews all unstrung to totters along the difficult footpath of life as he best may. Conscious of his infirmity, that his tempered steel and elasticity are lost, he forever afterwards looks wistfully about him in quest of support external to himself. His pervading and continual hope, a hallucination which, in the face of all discouragement and making light of impossibility, haunts him while he lives, and I fancy, like the other convulsive throes of the cholera torments him for a brief space after death, is that finally, and in no long time, by some happy coincidence of circumstance, he shall be restored to office. This faith, more than anything else, steals the pith and availability out of whatever enterprise he may dream of undertaking. Why should he toil and moil and be at so much trouble to pick himself up out of the mud, when, in a little while hence, the strong arm of his uncle will raise and support him? Why should he work for his living here, or go to dig gold in California, when he is so soon to be made happy at monthly intervals with a little pile of glittering coin out of his uncle's pocket? It is sadly curious to observe how slight a taste of office suffices to inject a poor fellow with this singular disease. Uncle Sam's gold, meaning no disrespect to the worthy old gentleman, has, in this respect, a quality of enchantment like that of the devil's wages. Whoever touches it should look well to himself, or he may find the bargain to go hard against him, involving if not his soul, yet many of its better attributes, its sturdy force, its courage and consistency, its truth and self-reliance, and all that gives emphasis to the manly character. Here was a fine prospect in the distance. Not that the surveyor brought the lesson home to himself, or admitted that he could be so utterly undone either by continuance in office or injectment. Yet my reflections were not the most comfortable. I began to grow melancholy and restless, continually prying into my mind to discover which of its poor properties were gone, and what degree of detriment had already accrued to the remainder. I endeavoured to calculate how much longer I could stay in the custom house and yet go forth a man. To confess the truth, it was my greatest apprehension, as it would never be a measure of policy to turn out so quite an individual as myself, and it being hardly in the nature of a public officer to resign. It was my chief trouble, therefore, that I was likely to grow grey and decrepit in the surveyorship, and become much such another animal as the old inspector. Might it not, in the tedious lapse of official life that lay out before me, finally be with me, as it is with this venerable friend, to make dinner hour the nucleus of the day, and to spend the rest of it as an old dog spends it, asleep in the sunshine or in the shade? A dreary look forward this, for a man who felt it to be the best definition of happiness to live throughout the whole range of his faculties and sensibilities. But, all this while, I was giving myself very unnecessary alarm. Providence had meditated better things for me, than I could possibly imagine for myself. A remarkable event of the third year of my surveyorship, to adopt the tone of P.P. It was the election of General Taylor to the presidency. It is essential, in order to a complete estimate of the advantages of official life, to view the incumbent at the incoming of hostile administration. His position is then of the most singularly irksome, and, in every contingency, disagreeable that a wretched mortal can possibly occupy with seldom an alternative or good on either hand, although what presents itself to him as the worst may even very probably be the best. But it is a strange experience to a man of pride and sensibility to know that his interests are within control of individuals who neither love nor understand him, and by whom, since one or the other must happen, he would rather be injured than obliged. 
Strange, too, for one who's kept his calmness throughout the contest to observe the bloodthirstiness that has developed in the hour of triumph, and to be conscious that he is himself among its objects. There are few uglier human traits of nature than this tendency, which I now witnessed in men no worse than their neighbors, to grow cruel merely because they possess the power of inflicting harm. If guillotine, as applied to office holders, were literal fact, instead of one of the most apt metaphors, it is my sincere belief that the active members of the victorious party were sufficiently excited to have chopped off all our heads, and to have thanked heaven for the opportunity. It appears to me, who have been a calm and curious observer, as well in victory as defeat, that this fierce and bitter spirit of malice and revenge has never distinguished the many triumphs of my own party, as it now did that of the Whigs. The Democrats take offices, as a general rule, because we need them, and because the practice of many years has made it the law of political warfare, which, unless a different system be proclaimed, it will weakness and cowardice to murmur at. But the long habit of victory has made them generous. They know how to spare when they see occasion, and when they strike, the axe be sharp indeed, but its edge is seldom positioned with ill will. Nor is it their custom ignominiously to kick the head which they have just struck off. In short, unpleasant as was my predicament at best, I saw much reason to congratulate myself that I was on the losing side rather than the triumphant one. If heretofore I had been none of the warmest partisans, I began now, at this season of peril and adversity, to be pretty acutely sensible with which party my predilections lay. Nor was it without something like regret and shame that, according to a reasonable calculation of chances, I saw my own prospect of retaining office to be better than those of my democratic brethren. But who can see an inch into futurity beyond his nose? My own head was the first that fell. The moment when a man's head drops off is seldom, or never, I am inclined to think, precisely the most agreeable of his life. Nevertheless, like the greater part of our misfortunes, even so serious a contingency brings its remedy and consolation with it, if the sufferer will but make the best, rather than the worst, of the accident which has befallen him. In my particular case, the consolatory topics were close at hand, and indeed had suggested themselves to my meditations a considerable time before it was requisite to use them. In view of my previous weariness of office and vague thoughts of resignation, my fortune somewhat resembled that of a person who should entertain the idea of committing suicide, and, although beyond his good hopes, meet with the good hap to be murdered. In the custom house, as before in the old manse, I had spent three years, a term long enough to rest a weary brain, long enough to break off the old intellectual habits and make room for new ones, long enough and too long to have lived in an unnatural state, doing what was really of no advantage nor delight to any human being, and withholding myself from toil that would, at least, have stilled an unquiet impulse in me. Then, moreover, as regarded by his unceremonious ejectment, the late surveyor was not altogether ill-pleased to be recognized by the Whigs as an enemy, since his inactivity in political affairs, his tendency to roam at will in that broad and quiet field where all mankind may meet, rather than confine himself to those narrow paths where brethren of the same household must diverge from one another, had sometimes made it questionable with his brother Democrats whether he was a friend. Now, after he had won the crown of martyrdom, though with no longer a head to wear it on, the point may be looked upon as settled. Finally, little heroic as he was, it seemed more decorous to be overthrown in the downfall of the party, with which he had now contented to stand the remain of forlorn survivor, when so many worthier men were falling. After subsisting for four years on the mercy of a hostile administration, to be compelled then to define his position anew, and claim the yet more humiliating mercy of a friendly one. Meanwhile, the press had taken up my affair, 
and kept me for a week or two, careering through the public prints in my decapitated state, like Irving's headless horseman, ghastly and grim, and longing to be buried as a political dead man ought. So much for my figurative self. The real human being, all this time, with his head safely on his shoulders, had brought himself to a comfortable conclusion that everything was for the best, and, making an investment in ink and paper and steel pens, had opened his long-discussed writing desk, and was again a literary man. Now it was that the lubrications of my ancient predecessor, Mr. Surveyor Pugh, came into play. Rusty, through long idleness, some little space was requisite before my intellectual machinery could be brought to work upon the tale with an effect in any degree of satisfactory. Even yet, though my thoughts were ultimately much absorbed in the task, it wears, to my eye, a stern and somber aspect. Too much ungladdened by genial sunshine, too little relieved by tender and familiar influences which soften almost every scene of nature and real life, and undoubtedly should soften every picture of them. This uncaptivating effect is perhaps due to the period of hardly accomplished revolution, and still seething turmoil in which the story shaped itself. It is no indication, however, of a lack of cheerfulness in the writer's mind, for he was happier while straying through the gloom of these sunless fantasies than at any time since he had quitted the old manse. Some of the briefer articles which contribute to make up the volume have likewise been written since my involuntary withdrawal from the toils and honours of public life, and the remainder are gleaned for annuals and magazines of such antique date that they have gone round the circle and come back to novelty again. Keeping up the metaphor of the political guillotine, the whole may be considered as the posthumous papers of a decapitated surveyor, and a sketch which I am now bringing to a close, if too autobiographical for a modest person to publish in his lifetime, will readily be excused in a gentleman who writes from beyond the grave. Peace be with all the world. My blessings on my friends. My forgiveness to my enemies. For I am in the realm of quiet. The life of the custom house lies like a dream behind me. The old inspector, who, by the by, I regret to say, was overthrown and killed by a horse some time ago, else he would certainly have lived forever. He and all those other venerable personages who sat with him at that receipt of a custom, are but shadows in my view, white-headed and wrinkled images which my fancy used to sport with, and has now flung aside forever. The merchants, Pingree, Phillips, Shepherd, Upton, Kimball, Bertram, Hunt. These, and many other names, which had such a classic familiarity for my ear six months ago, these men of traffic, who seem to occupy so important a position in the world, how little time is it required to disconnect me from them all, not merely an act, but recollection. It is with an effort that I recall the figures and appellations of these few. Soon, likewise, my old native town will loom upon me through the haze of memory, a mist brooding over and around it, as if it were no portion of the real earth, but an overgrown village in cloudland, with only imaginary inhabitants to people its wooden houses and walk its lonely lanes and the unpicturesque prolixity of its main street. Henceforth, it ceases to be a reality on my life. I am a citizen of somewhere else. My good town people will not much regret me, for, though it has been as dear as object as any in my literary efforts to be of some importance in their eyes and to win myself a pleasant memory in this abode and burial place of so many of my forebearers, there has never been, for me, the genial atmosphere which a literary man requires in order to ripen the best harvest of his mind. I shall do better amongst other faces, and these familiar ones, it need hardly be said, will do just well without me. It may be, however, of transporting and triumphant thought, that the great-grandchildren of the present race may sometimes think kindly of the scribbler of bygone days, 
when the antiquary of days to come, among the sites memorable in the town's history, shall point out the locality of the town pump. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm not going to ask if you enjoyed that chapter, because frankly, it was terrible. I hate Nathaniel Hawthorne with a passion, but it's on your school reading list. The book itself, The Scarlet Letter, is supposed to be good, but having 15% of the book, my copy is 192 pages, having 30 pages of those 192, 15%, be just introduction that has nothing to do with the plot, is absolutely ridiculous. I really hope that you stick with me for the rest of the book, it's supposed to be very good. That's why it's lasted as long as it has, and why it's still on your school reading list so many years after publication. But my god, why the hell is there a 30-page introduction that has nothing to do with the plot? Also, let me know what you thought of my New Hampshire accent. Um, once again, thank you for listening. Congratulations to those who made it this far. And until next time, bye bye